Now, what I feel the Lord has put on my heart for you is actually bang in line, if that's a theological enough term, bang in line with what's been prayed, prophesied, read, spoken out in other languages, beautiful interpretations, and that's this. In this season, we're about to enter Advent. I don't know if you kind of celebrate those things. I'm sure, children, you have Advent calendars at home. If you don't, then see your parents. (laughs) Because you're missing out. I, we, we love advent calendars with little chocolates in. We're going to, about, in this next week, we're going to enter a season of advent. And we're going to enter the season of Christmas. And we're going to enter a season of peace, tranquility, calm, no stress. We just drift through with loving God. No, actually, I find Christmas one of the most stressful times of the year, if I'm honest. You kind of think, oh, it's great, I'm going to have a Christmas holiday. Well, actually, it doesn't quite always work like that with family and friends and seeing people and doing stuff. And actually, it could be quite a busy season, can't it? And I feel God's spoken to me afresh this week to say to you and to say to us as a community, he wants the love of Jesus passion for Jesus, love for Christ, to be freshly stirred amongst us, and that actually this season, even though it's busy and frenetic and there's lots going on, we might be freshly energised by the love of God in Christ. And actually that so fits in with those amazing readings Linda brought, Rory brought, it it so fits in with the amazing tongues and interpretations that we had. They were so, I think it was Anne, I think it was Rachel, I think it so fitted in with the song that was brought. It so is what God is saying to us this morning that I feel very encouraged. Now, I'm going to refer to a book of the Bible that's one of those dangerous, they're all dangerous books of the Bible, But I'm going to refer to the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. And it's one of those ones that you have to be a little careful with what you read out publicly. Because the Song of Songs is an interesting one because primarily it's a love poem. Its prime interpretation is it's a love, or it's historical, that it's a a love between Solomon, King Solomon, and his shepherdess bride. But then it's also celebrating... A man's love for a woman. It celebrates marriage. It's interesting, in this very building yesterday, there was a wonderful marriage, wasn't there, of Tom and Kirsten. And actually, it's interesting this weekend that I should be speaking about this, because the Bible speaks so much of our relationship with the Lord, not of a slave to a master, not of just... We obey him because he's Lord, although we do obey him because he really is Lord. And that's absolutely right. But it talks about the love that we have with him, that somehow Jesus is our great husband, that Jesus is our great bridegroom, and actually we are the body of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. There's lots of verses in the Bible like that. Romans 7 verse 4 says this, You're married to the one who rose from the dead. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, Paul says, I've promised you to one husband, to Christ, that I might present you to him as a pure virgin. And in the end, heaven, when we get to heaven on earth, when we get to the new heavens that we were singing about earlier, actually this is what it says about the heavens in Revelation 19. 
Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb, that's Jesus, the Lamb of God, has come and the bride, that's us, has made herself ready. So our relationship with the Lord Jesus, yes, it is one of he's the master, he's the Lord. It is a family one. He's our elder brother who's introduced us to the father. These are all right concepts. He's the king, we're the army. These are great biblical concepts. He's the head, we're the body. But the consistent theme of this morning and the consistent theme of what I want to bring to you today is that he is our great husband and that we are called to be in love with him just like a bride is in love with her bridegroom. And actually, down through the centuries, the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon has been interpreted in that way. Let me give you a couple of quotes. This is John Piper. He says this, Centuries of biblical scholars have construed, that means worked out, that the Song of Solomon is a story about Christ and the church. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great leader in London of the last century, said this, Song of Solomon is a mine of spiritual treasure. It's one of the most exquisite expositions of the relationship of the believer and the Lord found anywhere else in the Bible. So if you'd like to turn with me to Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, it might be called, in your Bible. It's interesting, it's a little bit like a play. It's like literature. We've got to understand the genre of the literature. And although it's a love poem, it's like a play because different parts of this are spoken by different voices. So I don't know what you've got. I've got the old version of the, very old version, as you can tell, it's falling apart, of the NIV. And in the new version, I think it says he and she. In the, my version, it says, uh, be, it says beloved and lover and friends. So you've just got to know who's speaking. So when it's, when it speaks of the lover, that's he, that's Jesus, in my interpretation, and in Piper's interpretation, and in actually Spurgeon's interpretation, right down through the ages, people have interpreted this way. When it talks about the beloved, the loved one, that's she, that's us, that's the church, and when it says friends, that's just like a chorus line that comes in and says some other stuff. So we're just going to start to, we're not going to get through the whole book, obviously, in the next half an hour, but we are going to look at some Three major principles from this book. And the first one is this. God wants to stir in us passion for Jesus. God wants to stir in us passion for Jesus. And it was so beautiful to hear Anne's interpretation of the tongue, how that was so much about God loving us, putting his arm. It was, it was love language, actually, which is so in line with this. Rachel brought the same. It was love language, so in line with this. So Solomon, Song of Songs. Beloved. So this is the beloved speaking. Who's the beloved? Us, the church. Us, all right? And it's kind of love language, but we've got to translate that into our concepts, obviously. But it's love poetry. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me 
into his chambers. And I want to start off by saying this, that this is the cry of every true believer's heart. A cry of intimacy, a cry of love that God puts in our hearts for intimacy with him, for passion for him, for love for him. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. There should be within us a cry for intimacy with God. I mean, that's what worship is all about. The end of worship may not be how we start. We may enter his gates with thanksgiving and come into his courts with praise. But where we end up in worship is always intimacy. We did it this morning. It's always love for Jesus. It's always love for our Father in heaven. It's always love inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's all about a personal relationship with God. Now, you may be a visitor here this morning. You may be on our current Alpha course so brilliant if you're here. It may be that actually you've come along with a friend. Maybe you came to the wedding yesterday. You're a guest and you thought, well, I'll just check this church out tomorrow as well. Well, this, I believe, is addressed to you as well because, like Rachel said in her interpretation, God has always loved me. You think, that's a little arrogant, isn't it? No, it's not. It's biblically true. God so loved the world, the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3, 16, God so loved the world and he loved you that he gave his only son, the Lord Jesus, for you. And actually, as I'm speaking, I believe a new passion for God and a new excitement for God is going to start to be birthed in your heart. Talks in this verse, it says, your love is more delightful than wine. Now, some Christians go, tut, tut, tut. One should not delight in wine anyway. Well, I'll let you into a secret. (laughs) I think wine's rather nice. But whatever your passion is, for them, fine wine was like the most wonderful thing. For you, it might be sport. If Stuart was here, he'd be shouting out, Amen. (laughs) It might be your hobby. It might be that activity you engage in. It might be a relationship that you have. And these are all good things, by the way. I'm not saying these are bad things. Wine is a good thing. Your hobby is a good thing. Sheffield Wednesday is sort of a good thing, you know. Your relationship is a good thing. Your children are a good thing. Your husband or your wife is a good thing. But the Bible says this. Your love is more delightful than anything else. Actually, Jesus first. Jesus is the most delightful person that we could ever know. He's the most delightful thing. He's the most delightful concept. He's the most delightful one. He's the most delightful hobby. He's the, I'm not saying don't do your hobbies. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying those things are wrong because wine isn't wrong. <laughs> but I'm saying this. Compared to Jesus, he is the most wonderful thing. They're the moon compared to the sun of Jesus. That's a photograph compared to the real thing. He is the most delightful thing. And I guess that's a provocation to us this morning. Is he? Or are we kind of consumed with family? Are we consumed with relationships? Are we consumed with our hobbies? Are we consumed with our work? Are we consumed with fashion or music or other things? All good things. Or are we as a community passionately in love with Jesus? Can we say your love is more delightful than wine. Or as Rachel brought out in her, in her interpretation, she said, I haven't lost my first love. So that's a biblical concept, because 
Jesus had to say to a church, the Ephesian church, you have lost your first love. Now she said, I haven't lost my first love. That's beautiful. Have you lost your first love? Or are you like Rachel this morning, that beautiful interpretation of somebody else's tongue, of course, saying, actually, I've still got my first love. The first love that I had for Jesus. When I first came across him, when I first realized how wonderful and magnificent and mighty and strong and powerful and gracious and forgiving and kind and compassionate and glorious and faithful and everything else you could say. I remember a young guy getting saved at uh, Hastings and this was his first prayer. It wasn't the most edifying prayer. It wasn't the best prayer, but it was his best prayer. He said this, Lord Jesus, you're better than McDonald's. Now for him, he loved his hamburgers and he like lived on them and suddenly Jesus was better. You know, that's saying, Jesus, your love is better than wine. Jesus, you're better than McDonald's. Je- other hamburger places are available. But Jesus, you're the most important. You're, you're the best one. You're the best. You're the best. This is the first love. This is what Paul writes. I'm going to read this out. Children, you might find this slightly amusing. I did. It's... This is the message version of Philippians chapter 3 because he uses a kind of weird image which is, if you hear it right, you'll go, eh. Practice after me. Eh. But actually, if you study it, the Greek word is almost exactly what he, what the writer, Eugene Peterson of the message, translates. So this is what he says. All the things that I once thought were important, well, they're actually gone from my life now, compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ firsthand, everything I thought I had going for me, and in another passage he lists all his achievements, all his, all his things he's done, I consider them like dog dung. Ugh. Oh, you missed it. Ugh. He says, I've dumped that in the trash. Good place to put it. So that I can embrace Christ and be embraced by him. Now, it's interesting. God sometimes, and that's the actual word in the Greek. (laughs) It's the word excrement in the Greek. And sometimes the Bible uses words that kind of shock us and offend us to get our attention. And I'm not saying that your hobby or Sheffield Wednesday are like that. (laughs) But I'm saying this. Compared to Jesus, they're insignificant. Compared to Jesus is the most wonderful one. So my first point to you is this. God wants to stir passion for Jesus in us. Are you passionate for him? Now, this is the sort of passion. Flick over with me a couple of chapters to chapter 5. This is a beautiful description of... It's the beloved speaking. Who's the beloved? Us. And she's speaking to the lover. Who's the lover? Jesus. And this is chapter 5, and we'll, we'll find out the context of this in a moment. But just look at her language. It's not spiritual language. I think sometimes we, we over-spiritualize God. And we only ever use what we consider spiritual language. So my friend was right. Jesus, you are better than beef burgers. You are better than hamburgers. You are better than McDonald's. Jesus, your love is better than wine. Just look at her beautiful poetic language about Jesus. And I want to encourage you, even over Christmas, there's some really creative people in this church. I love City Church Sheffield because of your creativity. How about some poets 
and some prose writers and some songwriters and some script writers and some dramatists writing about Jesus with non-religious language like this. Listen to this. My lover is radiant and ruddy. He's outstanding amongst 10,000. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies, dripping with myrrh. His arms are like rods of gold, set with chrysolite. His body is like polished ivory, decorated with sapphires. His legs are like pillars of marble, set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like the Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my lover. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Can you describe Jesus in your words? With beautiful comparisons, Jesus, I believe, is stirring in us passion for him. My second point is this. Because as a guest here, or someone on Alpha, or someone who came to the wedding, or someone who's just popped in and found out what crazy crew we really are like, you might say, well, that's all right for you. How do you get passion for Jesus? I kind of, I wouldn't mind that. I wouldn't mind that kind of passion for God. In fact, I see it in my friends. It's what I love about the person who invited me to Alpha. It's what I love about uh, Tom and Kirsten yesterday. It's what I love about my friends who invite. How do I get passion for Jesus? Well, let me tell you this: passion for Jesus comes from first recognizing His passion for us. Again, that's what Rachel brought in her interpretation. God has always loved you. And God doesn't just tolerate you. It's not just, well, I love the whole world, and you're kind of like one of those formulas. God loves the whole world, you're in the world, therefore he has to love you. And when God looks at you, well, I kind of made a deal, love the whole world, you're in the world, must love you. No! He's passionate. God so loved the world that he sent his son. God is passionate about you. He loves you. A guy called Mike Bickle, who wrote a brilliant book, I don't even know if it's in print anymore, or Sarah, called Passion for Jesus. He wrote this. We will never have more passion for God than our understanding of his passion for us. So it starts with his passion. The Bible says this in John 1, John 4, 19. We love, well, you can fill it in. We love because he first loved us. You know the Bible. We love, why do we love? Because he first loved us. Our love is only a response to his beautiful love. And we must understand that. We must understand that this is who our God is, primarily. I mean, it's interesting, if I had to say to you, God is... And, you know, people fill it in, oh, he's holy, he's faithful, he's good, he's kind, he's compassionate. Well, actually, when John, who knew Jesus and knew Jesus said, I've come to display the Father, I've come to show what the Father's like. John, the Apostle John, who knew Jesus probably the best of anyone on planet Earth during his incarnation, when he wrote to the church at the end of his life later, he said this, God is, and he's kind of reaching for co- love. That's what God is like. God is love. God loves you. God is for you. He has a passionate, burning love for you. 
And if you're a guest here this morning, we want you to know that. We like you, but God loves you. And he's for you. And he thinks you're wonderful. Why? Because he created you and he wants to have a beautiful relationship with you. Let me just give you a couple of quotes. You don't have to look these up. This is Song of Solomon 7. These are edited highlights, by the way. Song of Solomon 7, verse 10. I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. See, God's desire is for you. God has desires, just like you have desires. God has a passion, and that passion is to know his creatures. Because he's created them with love in mind. And he wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And this is his response. This is Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verses 1, edited highlights, I say. Because there are certain words in there. Verses 1 following. All beautiful are you, my darling. There is no flaw in you. You've stolen my heart, my sister, my bride... With one glance of your eyes. See, how do you think God feels about you? We often talk about how we feel towards God. But how do you think God feels towards you? I'll tell you how he feels towards you. He feels passionate. He feels, like it says here, you've stolen my heart. The old version of that, the old, I don't know if anyone here reads the King James version or the authorised version anymore. The older version says, his heart is ravished. Isn't that a lovely word? It's kind of onomatopoeic, isn't it? It sounds like ravished. It's like, his heart is ravished by you. The word there, I looked it up in the Greek, ravished means to seize or to take, to overcome with emotions of joy and delight. Parents tell me this when they look at their children sometimes. (laughs) They are overcome with feelings of joy and delight. I'm sure all the time, all the time. I'm sure that Tom and Kirsten yesterday, when they looked at each other, were overcome with emotions of joy and delight. When God looks at you, what do you think he sees? And I think many Christians think God is, or even non-Christians, people who wouldn't yet describe themselves as Christians, kind of feel that primarily God's like the headmaster. Or primarily he's like the kind of guy at work who keeps you on track. Primarily he's got a clipboard and like tut, tut, tut. Primarily that's what God's like. Because he's holy, you know, and I'm not. And he's good and I'm not. And he's kind of like making a list, checking it twice. (laughs) Going to find out who's naughty or nice. I mean that's kind of our view of God up in heaven. Actually, that's not our God at all. Our God looks with eyes of blazing fire, of love and mercy and grace and truth on us as a church. And he is overwhelmed with our beauty because he put that beauty in us in the first place. We're first of all created in the image of God. And then when we become a Christian, we're filled with his spirit. And there's a new creation which is in the image of the, of the glory of God. He loves us. It's not like he pretends to like us. He absolutely loves us. And if you're a guest here, I want to say to you, God doesn't just tolerate you. God doesn't just put up with you. God of the universe is actively seeking you out. That's why you're here this morning. Because God is drawing, you don't understand it, but God is drawing you to himself. Why? Because he absolutely loves you. He's absolutely for you. Now there's some barriers to receiving his love. That is our sin. That is our shame. 
And glory be to God, in Jesus Christ, he's removed those barriers. So there is now no barrier. Jesus, when he died on the cross, took all our sin and shame and guilt and filth and muck and badness and unloveliness so that God could truly look over us now and say, you're my delight. I love you. I'm for you. I want to draw you to myself. Passion for Jesus comes from recognising his passion for us. Last point. Passion for Jesus will stir action in us. See, Tom just didn't love Kirsten and Kirsten didn't love Tom. They did something about it. They got married. And when you love someone, it stirs you to action. This isn't some gooey-eyed teenage romance. I love you, I love you, I love you. No, actually, the love of God is robust. In fact, it says in the Old Testament, the love of, it says love as strong as death has won us. What does that mean? It means God did something about his love. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to die for us, to give. God so loved you, he did something about it. And I believe when we get hold of this love, When we get hold of the fact that the God of the universe loves us unconditionally, he wholeheartedly has passion in his heart for us. It does two things in our hearts. Firstly, it causes us to live for him. It causes us to give our lives to him. If you're not a Christian this morning, why would you not want to give your life to the one who loves you? Why would you not want to say this morning, yes, Jesus, I love you, you love me, and I'm going to give my life to you. That's a response to the love of God. And for us as Christians here, Actually, we're to live for him. Now, Christians always get this round the wrong way. They say, to make God love me, I'm going to live good life for him. Huh? That's stupid. Because he loves you, you can live for him. Jesus said the same. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because love produces change in our hearts. Love does something. Love affects something in our very being, in our very lives. And actually, that's what's going to happen more and more in our lives. You see, I used to think I'd, the reason that I was a sinner, or the reason that I sinned, was that I had too, too many strong passions. It's like, oh, I'm too passionate. Oh, I've got to dial that passion down, otherwise I might give in to... Oh, I've got to dial that passion down, otherwise I might... Oh, oh, that passion. Oh, dial that down. No, this is the truth. The reason I sinned is I'm not passionate enough. It's just that I'm focusing my passion in the wrong areas. Actually, once I have passion for Jesus, when I have passion for him, I actually don't want to sin. I don't want to do that. Those other things aren't attractive anymore compared to him. This is what... A great writer called Sam Storm said. This is so good. The only thing that will break the power of sin is passion for Jesus. The only thing that will guard me from being entrapped by sin is being entranced with Jesus. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, Christ's love compels us. 
See, when you love someone, it stirs you, it compels you. Or as Isaac Watts wrote in that brilliant hymn that we don't sing anywhere near enough, love so amazing, so divine, suggests, kind of hopes. No, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my own. You think, oh, that's a bit strong, isn't it? God demands something. Well, when you've come across a love so amazing, so divine, it demands something of me. I line up with him. I can't help but follow him. I can't help but love him. Let's can I have a little break here and engage the children a little bit and tell you a story about two friends of mine, Joe and John. I grew up with them. I was at school with Joe, and John was my friend at school. And they started to have a friendship. And those of us who knew them could kind of see where this friendship was going. But John had this little problem. Boy, a boy problem. You know what a boy problem is? Ever come across a boy like that? A bit stinky. I, I, I say it's a boy. I shouldn't really say it's a boy. We probably shouldn't have. Theresa May got into trouble for having boy jobs and girl jobs. We probably shouldn't have a problem. We probably shouldn't today say boy problems and girl problems. Some of you looking so serious. You know what I'm talking about. He had a little problem. And some of us had tried to correct this problem. You know, for Christmas we bought him deodorant. You know, that sort of suggest or sort of suggestive thing and we occasionally suggested he had a bath or wash or and yeah it, it didn't really change my friend John they were in one of our church plants today and they know I tell this story by the way and uh, he, he, he yeah, exactly and John just wouldn't change he was kind of like a bit of a smelly guy and uh, you think John this isn't very attractive to a young lady until Joe came along and then once they started to get on together, and once they started this relationship, Joe, John smelt like Boots the chemist. John was sweetness and light thereafter. He actually reeked of aftershave and soap and deodorant, and it was amazing. What changed? Well, love. Love changes everything. See, that's what happens. When you love someone, it, the law, you shouldn't, you should not, thou shan't, the law has no power to change you. The law is impotent. It can't change anyone. The law just tells you what's wrong. We told John what was wrong. Everyone knew. The whole room knew what was wrong. But we couldn't change him. Joe, by saying nothing, by doing nothing, just being who Joe was, changed him and changed his whole heart and habit and lifestyle. When we're in love with Jesus, things that we're struggling with and hitting and having battles with will be changed, not because of willpower and hard work and seeing that they're wrong, but because of a greater power, the power of love, the power of Jesus at work in our hearts. Being more, what does Sam Storm say? The only thing that will guard me from being entrapped by sin is being entranced with Jesus. Are you entranced with Jesus? Do you love him? Well, if you do... That's one of the effects it will change in you. The second thing it will change in you is actually we will be more attractive to the world. And we will talk more naturally about Jesus and Jesus will come out of our pores whether we realise it or not. You see, that's what happened with Moses. Moses went in to be with God and to be his friend. He came out shining like a torch. Shining out. Now that's a spiritual picture. When we spend time with Jesus, we become more shining. 
we become more attractive. We become more... When people have said it to Anne and I, there's an aura about you too. And what's the special about... There's nothing special about us, but we spend time with Jesus. The other day, it was, it was kind of a bit weird. One of those accidental things. I don't know if I've told you this. Happened about a month ago. Anne and I were praying for our neighbour. This is... This is funny. This is a neighbour who they bought their house just like that. Next door, sold just like that. One of those before. Thank you. But interestingly enough, they couldn't sell the property that they had to move into that house. And they kind of got one of these, I don't know what you call it, bridging loans or whatever. And that's, that's a bit of a pain for people. It's like expensive. And I know they're worried about it. And they, they've talked to us about it. And Anne and I, we decided we were going to pray for them. And we're going to pray, God, bless our, bless our neighbours. And Lord, please... Please sell their house for them. Please do that. Please, we want to, we want to be a blessing with them. And we've been praying that. Well, anyway, just after that, I literally, I was a bit bleary-eyed in the morning. I go out for a walk in the morning. That's how I, how I spend time with Jesus. I go and walk with him every morning. And I went out the door, and it was quite early. It was a little bit dark still. And my, my neighbour, Graham, was right there looking at me. And, I, and you know when somebody's, you don't notice them. Oh, he made me jump. I said, oh, sorry, Graham, I've just been praying for you. Oh. I didn't mean to say that. And then I had to explain to him what I meant with the fact I've just been praying for him. Because otherwise it's a kind of weird thing to say to your neighbour first thing. I've been praying for you. <laughs> Bit strange. Do you know what? It opened up an amazing conversation. And they now are more open. Now, I'm not saying they're Christians yet, but what I'm saying is when you love Jesus and you align yourself with Jesus and you start to love the things that Jesus loves, it's going to come out of you naturally. It's not going to be hard for us to evangelize. It was one of them at the prayer meeting on uh, Friday, and by the way, I love the prayer. If I could come every, if I could come every Friday night to, to your prayer meetings, I'd be a happy boy. I can't because we travel mostly. But look, we were there just Friday night. And just, I think it was Linda. Was it, who, was it, who was it? Linda and was it... Um, Michelle had been out in the park and they'd been talking to this young guy and talking about how wonderful Jesus was. And I think that, you know, that just doesn't happen naturally. You don't get two ladies of mature and advanced years. Not that mature and advanced. Careful. Talking to young men in the park. Young, you know. You don't get many of that. But these ladies who are mature and walking with Jesus... That's, that's lovely. I'm, you know, only about the same age as I am. You're right. They were talking to this young guy, and he said, oh, I want to come on Alpha. I want to come to your... He may be here this morning, I don't know. But what I'm saying is this. It just naturally came out of Michelle. It naturally came out of Linda. That's what they're like. They love Jesus. They spend time with Jesus. It comes up. Evangelism shouldn't be a big, heavy thing. You've got to evangelize. You must tell your neighbors about Jesus. That's the law. It doesn't produce anything. But when we start to say, when we start to realise how lovely Jesus is, when we start to realise how amazing he is, when we start to realise how beautiful he is, we can't help but tell other people about how beautiful Jesus is. Right, let me land this. There was so much more I was going to say. How do you do it? How do you cultivate passion for Jesus? I want to encourage you to be deliberate about this. I want to encourage you this Christmas time, this Advent as we're going in, to really be deliberate. Anne often uses to me the illustration of building a garden. Yeah, it doesn't happen on day one. You move into a property. You know, you have to dig. You have to, you have to put plants in. You have to cultivate. 
And passion for Jesus is a cultivation of a whole lifestyle being deliberate with him. In fact, that kind of garden image is right the way through the Song of Solomon. Verse, chapter 2, verse 3. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover. I delight to sit in his shade. Chapter 4, verse 12. You are a locked up garden, my bride. You're an enclosed, sealed fountain. It's garden imagery. And I just want to encourage you to deliberately, this, these next few weeks, in the lead up to Christmas and to the new year, to be deliberate about your time with Jesus. Anne just says it takes time and energy to do this in the garden. Take time with Jesus. For me, I go walking without my mobile device because I need to be separated from that because I'm permanently attached to it otherwise. For Jesus, it said he got up early and went up into the hills. Some people need to... Jesus said, when you pray, lock yourself in your closet. So which is it? Up early in the hills or lock yourself? Whichever works for you. Sometimes you need, because of your responsibilities, you need to have a shut door and you need to have a little space. Sometimes it's a workspace. Sometimes it's a, I know a friend of mine who used to lock the toilet door at work and just spend some minutes, some time with Jesus. Whatever it is for you, spend some time with him. Not because you have to. You know, Tom and Kirsten are going on honeymoon because they had to. You know, they had to do that because that's the law. You know, that's what we do. The honeymoon had to cost money, have to do it, spend time together, enjoy one another. <laughs> They love, they're loving it, I'm sure. There's no ha- effort for them. It's no hassle for them. Listen, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. What I'm saying is this, is let's be deliberate. Let's plan. They had to plan. They didn't just wake up this morning and say, oh, should have booked a honeymoon. No, they planned it. They planned it. I said, I hope they did. <laughs> they may be here at the back. I don't know. but <laughs> kind of be weird, wouldn't it? But what I'm saying is this, let's plan, let's plan to have some time with Jesus. Let's be deliberate. If you're stuck, let me suggest a few things. Number one, why don't you sing some of the songs we sing about Jesus? Why don't you sing those to him, like psalms? In fact, why don't you sing some of the psalms, like Linda brought that brilliant psalm? Or, I think it was Rory, brought that brilliant passage from Isaiah. Why don't you sing or read some of those? In fact, why don't you use the Bible like that, devotionally? I love to go devotionally through the Psalms. Or why don't you take some of the great passages about Jesus? I wrote some of these down. And you can tell me what the common denominator is here. And it's interesting that there is a common denominator. Read these chapters about Jesus. I just wrote down what I thought were some of the best chapters about Jesus. John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, Revelation 1. What's the common denominator? They're the first, they're the most important thing. When the writers are writing, what do they write about first and foremost? They write about Jesus. They write about how lovely he is, how glorious he is, how beautiful he is, how majestic he is, how kind he is. Now, I also encourage you, why don't you get some Christian books? Why don't you see Sarah, who'll give you some discount? (laughs) If you buy enough. Why don't you buy some great... Ask Sarah, ask me, ask Dan, ask Rich, ask Chris, ask your friends. What are some great books about Jesus? There's some brilliant literature out there. Some of it's free, actually, on... I shouldn't tell Sarah this, but some of it's free on um, Kindles and e-readers. And you can get some... You can download some great classic books about love for Jesus. Some great classic writers. But some ones that have blessed me over the years. Last few years, I've read a book called The Glory of Christ by Peter Lewis... I've read a book by Tim Keller called King's Cross, which is all about the glory and the cross. I read a brilliant one by Tom Wright, or 
as he's otherwise known, N.T., but Tom is his popular name, popular books. Tom Wright called Simply Jesus. I wrote one by a, a, a column writer in America, a, a, a newspaper writer called Philip Yancey, called The Jesus I Never Knew. I mean, there are so many great books about Jesus. Get hold of one. Husband, buy your wife one for Christmas. Wife, buy your husband one. Children, get your dad or your mum. Yeah, but let, read some stuff about Jesus. Because as you read this stuff, it actually starts to impact you. And then lastly, and this is where I'm going to end now. Why don't we pray for one another? Why don't we, if you feel, it's like, you ever see some of those TV programs and they say, if you've been affected by any area in this program, why don't you call this number? Well, you don't have to call a number. We can pray for you this morning. Now, if you're a guest this morning, you might feel this is a bit awkward. I, I, I don't know. I've never been prayed for before. Yes, you have. You just don't know about it. Come to the prayer meeting on Friday. <laughs> the reason you're here is someone's been praying for you. We're going to, one of the things we love to do in this church is just to minister to one another. Now, children, this, this might be something you, you might want mum and dad to pray with you or pray for you. Because actually, you're not the church of tomorrow, you're the church of today. And Jesus loves you as much as he loves your mum and dad. And actually, he's got a passion and a love for you. And he wants to fill you with his Holy Spirit. In fact, it's the Holy Spirit that comes and does this. This is the verse I want to end on. Ephesians 1, verse 17. I keep asking, Paul says, as an apostle, I keep asking. Paul says, as an apostle, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Jesus better. You may know him better. How do we get to know Jesus? Yeah, we know him in the Word. Yes, we know him as we read. Yes, we know him as we sing these beautiful songs. But we also know him as the Holy Spirit freshly fills us. 